Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Song of Songs, chapter 8. Before we get into the Word this morning, I just want to say a couple of things. We we had the, the, the joy of having a meet and greet yesterday for Milo Watson, who is our newest adoptee here at Providence Bible Fellowship. It was a wonderful time and a great reminder of the picture of the gospel. Um, Milo, in a sense, was snatched out of a hopeless situation, and now he is in a home where he will hear the name of Jesus every day of his life. That is a wonderful thing. And just as any child born into our homes or adopted into our homes, there's no guarantee that that child is going to come to know the Lord Jesus. It will not be because they did not hear the gospel every day. And we're so thankful that Milo has been adopted into a godly family where he will hear the gospel. And we need to continue to pray for the Watsons. Um, some of you may know that uh, Courtney and Michael Jones uh, started the adoption process almost two years ago. And this is an international adoption, and so it, it takes a lot longer, and there have, been, there have been some hurdles here and there. But it is raining baby boys. The, the Joneses found out this week that they have a son waiting for them in Columbus. And in Columbia, his name is Emmanuel Luke Jones, and the Joneses will be going to get him here in the next few months. Is that correct? So pray for them. There's a lot of red tape to wade through over these next few months, but uh, we're, we're very thankful that the Lord has, um, has brought another child into the fold. So um, our text this morning is Song of Songs, verse, or chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. So uh, let's stand together. We'll read all three of those verses and then pray for the Lord's help as we study the Word. <clears throat> Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her, beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's pray together. Father, we have just sung the words, I, I love to tell the old, old story. We love to tell that story. We love to hear that story. And we love that the story has been woven throughout the entirety of your scriptures. We are thankful for another opportunity to open your word this morning. We pray that you would help us to handle it rightly. That we would see Jesus where he is to be found here. 
that our affections once again would be would be inflamed for him, Lord, and because of that we would desire more than anything to image him in this world and to commend his gospel. And that in particular we would do that in our marriages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're closing in on the end of the song here. With this message, and Lord willing, one more. Most interpreters view this passage, these three verses, as something like a climax, which is interesting in that it's possibly the least sexual passage in the song. It's a climax in that the previous chapters lead the woman here to make a request of her husband and to make this grand statement about love itself. And it contains some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. It ties marital love directly to the heart of God. So, I've given you two words again this morning to, to, to hold on to as we walk through the text. Those words are born and bound. Born and bound. Their meaning will become clear as, as, we, as we proceed. Look with me first at, at verse 5 again. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now this is, this is the voice of the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? And our minds should be drawn back to chapter 3. These are the exact same words that we find in 3.6. And there in chapter 3, the bride of Solomon was being carried on his litter, and she was being carried to a marriage that would be anything but like the mar marriage depicted in the song. Anything but a monogamous, meaningful, truly intimate marriage. By, this by using this question, again, the author is once again making a contrast. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? It's the bride of the song at this time. Not the bride of Solomon, but the bride of the song. And what is she doing? She's leaning on her beloved. Again, there's this contrast with chapter 3. In chapter 3, the bride of Solomon is on his litter. She's being born on his litter. Born with an E. And here the bride of the, of the song in chapter 8 is being born by her husband himself. She's not leaning on him in the sense that you would you know, lean nonchalantly against a wall. Rather, he's supporting her weight. She's being borne up by him. She's resting on him. It's a picture of intimate dependence of the wife upon her husband. But this, this intimate dependence we, we find is mutual. Look at the rest of verse 5. Now she speaks, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Now, our attention here should be called back to chapter 2, where the woman likened her husband to an apple tree in the forest. He, he was an apple tree whose fruit was sweet to her taste. And in that scene, in 2.6, she said, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Then for the first time in the song, back in chapter 2, for the first time in the song, she exhorted the daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't do what we're doing until it's the appropriate time for you to do it. Now here in chapter 8, we're seeing these words again. She's calling her husband 
her husband's attention back to that scene. And she's saying, I awakened you there in the same sense that I told the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken love. That's the same verb that she uses in the exhortation to the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, the daughters of Jerusalem do not awaken love. She says to her husband here, I awakened you under the, the, the apple tree. The marital love that she gave to her husband awakened him. She says of that tree, there your mother was in labor with you. That's where she gave birth to you. There are three times in the song where the bride connects the place of their marital activities to one of their birthplaces. She does it twice with her mother, saying that I would like to enjoy you maritally in this place where I was born. And now here she's saying, under that tree where I awakened you with my marital love, that's where you were born. And the point is that their love together has been something like a new birth. Reminds me of a great country song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it this time. If I, if I start singing this song, my wife would probably start singing harmony, and Rick and Michelle Jones would probably start dancing. It could get out of hand very quickly. But, but let me just give you three lines from this song, okay? I was born the day you kissed me. I died inside the night you left me, but I lived. Oh, how I lived while you left me. Now, there's like an unwritten rule among the songwriting community in Nashville that something like 70% of the love songs have to include some reference to a person leaving someone else, okay? But it's on the honor system. If you take that middle line out, that middle line was, I died inside the night you left me. Take that out, you're left with, I was born the day you kissed me. I lived, oh, how I lived while you loved me. Those lyrics say something very similar to what the woman is communicating in verse 5. You were born, in a sense, the day that I kissed you. And you had a new birth when we began to love one another. Your mom gave birth to you. I awakened you. And in a sense, the man is as dependent upon the woman as she is on him. Her love has given him a new birth. Now this, this text is one of at least two in the song that should lead us to be very slow to make a tight connection between the man of the song and Jesus. There's a temptation to say, oh, the, the man of the song represents Jesus and everything he does represents something that Jesus would do. Well, no, that's not the case because if you, if you think back to chapter 5, the man, he gets tired of knocking on the door and he goes away. But we know from Revelation 3.20 that Jesus remains outside the door all the time knocking. He never leaves. He never gets tired. He continues to pursue intimacy. And then here we find that this man has had something like a new birth, not Jesus. Okay, Jesus gives the new birth. All right, But the point here is that these two depend upon one another. They're connected in mutual dependence. So she says in verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now in the ancient world, a person's seal was often like a signet ring. It bore their unique mark. They would carve their mark into this ring, and it would serve as something like a signature. On, on, on official documents, that ring would be used to, to, to stamp 
wax or clay to authenticate the identity of the signer. And, and sometimes it'd be used to seal a letter. It could also be used to play, place a mark of ownership on a possession. It was a statement and guarantee of that person's identity. So to, to engrave your mark on a signet ring was, in a sense, to engrave your identity on that ring. And you wouldn't just leave this thing lying around. It was a highly prized possession. So people would wear them around their neck, on their heart, so to speak, or they would, they would tie them around their arms so, so that it was secure, close to them all the time. Now, some commentators hold that this woman is then saying, let me stamp my seal on your arm and on your heart. Let, 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 let's let everyone know that you belong to me, heart and body. However, the text indicates she wants to be his actual signet ring. She wants to be the ring, not the mark. She doesn't want to place her mark on him. She wants to be his ring. If you look at other places that this noun is used, the, the, the noun for seal or signet ring, every other place that it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to the ring itself, not the mark it makes. One of those texts is the very last verse in the prophet Haggai. He uses the same verb and now set as a seal that, that, that is used here. Haggai uses that in Haggai. There in Haggai, the Lord says to Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. In other words, God is saying to Zerubbabel, you will be my signet ring. And that's what, that's what the woman is requesting of the man here in the song. She doesn't want to be a mark on his arm or heart, expressing her ownership of him. She wants to be his signet ring. And of course, this is figurative language. What she means is, engrave your identity on me. That's what you do with the signet ring. Engrave your identity on me. Make me part of who you are. And that language about on, on your heart and on your arm, it simply conveys, hold me as, as close as possible, not just physically, but also to your heart. Cherish me. Bind me inextricably to yourself. Make me essential to your life. Make me part of you and make this permanent. So she goes on then to... to justify this request by commenting on the nature of love itself. Look at the rest of verse 6. She says, For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now We might, we might read her request to be His ring, to, to be essential to Him, and we might think, well, that's awfully possessive. It's maybe going a little too far. Well, no, this is the nature of love itself is, is what these lines are communicating. These two lines, love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, they are saying the same thing. Each of the three main words in those two, those two clauses are to be considered close synonyms. Bear with me now. But love and jealousy are close synonyms. As are strong and fierce, as are death and the grave. We tend to think of jealousy as only a negative thing. It is not inherently an evil thing. Jealousy is simply a reluctance or refusal to share something that belongs to you. Now, if that thing is something that should only belong to you and should only be enjoyed by you, jealousy is a good thing. But if that thing is something intend to be sh intended to be shared, then jealousy is a bad thing. I should not be jealous of my time, my money, my food, other resources. But when it comes to the romantic love of my wife, 
It is appropriate for me to be jealous. That is a good thing. It, it is appropriate for me to refuse to share that with anyone else. By God's design, it belongs exclusively to me. In fact, for me to share it with anyone else would be an abomination to God. That's good jealousy. And, and by making the word love parallel to the word jealousy in these two lines, the author is showing that Godly marital love is a jealous love. It wants exclusivity. It wants permanent attachment. It does not want to share what God has designed not to be shared. The, the, the close physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy between a man and wife should be exclusive. This is the nature of godly marital love. And as the woman says here, this, this godly Jealousy, this love is strong as death, fierce as the grave. What is that conveying? Well, have you ever known anyone to negotiate with death and win? No, when death comes for you, it wins the day. Of course, we're speaking in human terms. God has power over death. But from our perspective, when death comes, it cannot be denied. Death is relentless in the sense that it gets what it wants. When your time comes, your time comes. Likewise, this godly jealousy of marital love cannot be negotiated with. It is righteously territorial, and it will not be denied. And just as death will not loosen its grip when the time comes, so also marital love will not loosen its exclusive claim to the one loved. The, the, the woman has said over and over in this song, My beloved is mine, and I am his. This is a good thing. She, she goes on then to describe this fire, flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. Whenever we talk about jealous love, we should automatically think of our great God. In Exodus 34:14, God describes himself by saying, His name is jealous. And the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, as those first two commands are given, Jason's already read them for us. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall make, not make for yourself a carved image and bow down to it. The reason given for those commands is, For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. God will not share with another what belongs exclusively to Him. The worship, affection, and adoration of His people belongs to Him alone. He will not share it with another God. This is a righteous disposition. It's not negative. It's an aspect of God's love for His people. We find this also in Deuteronomy 4.24 where God forbids false worship and He says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now we, we tend to associate the flame of God with judgment, which is appropriate. But please begin to think about this. It is also a function of God's love to ferociously protect the exclusivity of his relationship to his people. It is, it is a part of his love to be jealous. You know, the desire of this woman in the song is to hold her husband close to herself and to be held close to him, to claim him as her own, and to call him to absolute fidelity. This is a reflection of the very flame of Yahweh, the righteously jealous love of our great God. She goes on to describe just how strong this love is in verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods 
drown it. Now, you and I have never seen a fire that can't be quenched. We haven't. Every fire that has ever existed on this earth was quenchable. You get enough water, and you can put out any fire. But the love that she's describing here, the very flame of Yahweh, is unextinguishable. There's not enough water to put out that fire. Godly love cannot be put out. The rest of the verse speaks to how invaluable this love is. Look at the rest of verse 7. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The, the best way to understand this is that the man would be despised because of how insulting his offer was. Love is so valuable. This righteously jealous love is so valuable that if, if, if Jeff Bezos, who, who is worth roughly $118 billion, if he came and offered all of that wealth for love, it would be such an insultingly low offer, you would despise him. What a wretch you are for bringing such a low offer to me for this valuable thing. This kind of godly love is so valuable. We can only say that it's invaluable. This love is invaluable, unquenchable, incomprehensibly strong. Its nature is to bind two people together permanently. The, the emotionally, physically, spiritually binding nature of this love explains why the woman has said multiple times to the daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, if, if we read that exhortation and we cheapen it to understand or to mean, don't allow yourself to get too sexually excited before it's time. We completely miss the point. She is saying this love is so powerful. It is so fierce. It's so unquenchable that outside the context for which God has designed it, it will be destructive. Don't touch it. Don't wake it up. Don't go near it until God has created the appropriate context for it. We'll talk more about that next time, Lord willing. But this, this is what's happening in the text. Okay, If we were to try to put all of these things into a couple of, a couple of truths that we can apply to our relationship with the Lord and, and our relationships with one another, it would be the two points in your notes. First of all, marital love as God intended bears up the one loved. Bears up the one loved. And second, marital love as God intended binds together the ones loved. Binds them together. Song of Songs is, a, is, is about divine marital love exemplified by Christ's love for the church. How is it that Jesus exemplifies what we see in this passage. Well, first of all, he gives us the new birth. The Father set his love on us from eternity past, and Christ, by his cross and empty tomb, has redeemed us and caused us to be born again. And there are implications of that new birth. Just as the woman desires to be the signet ring of her husband, so Jesus desires to engrave His image upon us, for us to be His signet ring, so to speak. He wants us to be a reflection of who He is. He saves us 
to the end that we might reveal His character to the world. We're conformed to His image as we hold tightly to Him, as we love Him above all. And this fiercely, righteously jealous love, Christ desires that kind of love from us. He gives that kind of love and He desires it from His people. Ultimate allegiance, where where no one and nothing comes before Him, for, for, for our hearts to be bound only to Him. He said to his disciples in Matthew 10, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. To follow Jesus Christ is to live for Him alone, to love Him above all, to worship Him alone. So we, we are to image Jesus Christ, and we are to adore Him above all. That is not super discipleship, that's discipleship. It's what everyone is called to, but we have a problem. We have a problem. A problem exposed by the history of Israel. God is a God of fiercely jealous love who expects absolute permanent monogamy from his people. But we find through the history of Israel that they had hearts prone to wander. Now our Lord Jesus has a jealous love for us, and he is jealous for our love, but we too have hearts naturally incapable of fidelity. You think back to the, 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 those chapters in Exodus and, and the rest of the Pentateuch just after the people come out of Egypt, just after they've been redeemed by God's mighty hand, they showed they could not be faithful to Yahweh. They did not trust Him. They were prone to chase after other gods. If you fast forward to the conquest of Canaan to the end of the book of Joshua, after repeated reminders about the people's obligation to be faithful to Yahweh alone, Joshua called on them to renew their covenant with Yahweh. Listen, listen to Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of, uh, that your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm sure that there are many of us who have that verse somewhere displayed in our house. We think, that's the verse of Joshua 24. That's not the verse. That's not the verse. It sets up the verse. The verse is verse 19, where Joshua responds. They, they hear this, and they're all whipped up. And yes, we're with you, Joshua. We will worship the Lord. And he says to them in verse 19, you are not able to worship the Lord your God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The book of Judges shows that Joshua was exactly right. The people were unable to remain faithful to the Lord. They repeatedly went back to their false gods in spite of the judgment that it always brought upon them. These people, what do they need? They needed new hearts. They needed to be changed from the inside out. And so characteristic was this spiritual adultery that the prophets Jeremiah and Malachi referred to the people of God repeatedly as faithless Israel. 
faithless Israel, playing the whore after every god on every high hill. The thing to keep in mind as we read the story of the Old Testament is that the Israelites are not unique. Their condition is the condition of all men. God requires the exclusive worship and adoration of all men, but none are capable. None can do it. We should see in the history of Israel not a unique aberration in the history of man, but a commentary on our own hearts. The prophet Zechariah offers offers a beautiful word. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 8. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. If you know where Matthew is, go back two two books. Zechariah is, is filled with references to the coming of Christ and his work. If you you have a decent knowledge of the Gospels and you read Zechariah, you'll see texts fulfilled by Christ in at least chapters 3, 6, 9, 12, and 13 of Zechariah. As far as clear Christological references go, Zechariah may be the most densely Christological of the prophets. Maybe. And I think we find another one in chapter 8. Now with that idea of of Israel being called faithless Israel. With that in your mind, look with me beginning at 8.1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. Now we may think, well that's really nice, but it's talking about Jerusalem. Which is in Judah, which has nothing to do with us. Well when we read of Jerusalem, when we read of Israel, Judah in the Old Testament, those promises are not exclusive to an ethnic group. The New Testament teaches in places like Galatians 3.29, those are ours by faith. Paul refers to the Gentile church as the Israel of God at the end of of Galatians. For Zechariah to prophesy that the Lord will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, that may be a reference to the new heavens and the new earth, but it also sounds an awful lot like the new covenant in Christ's blood inaugurated at the Lord's Supper. He lives now in our midst in that His Spirit dwells inside of us. And for Jerusalem to be called the faithful city, is parallel to promises in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 that He will give a new heart when He gives the Holy Spirit. He makes us faithful. He takes the faithless and turns them into the faithful. He puts a new spirit inside of us. What a relief! What good news! This this, this is godly, jealous, monogamous love that God has for His people and which Jesus requires of His disciples... Jesus enables in His disciples. He changes us so that we are characterized by faithfulness to Him. He keeps us faithful. Now the means that He uses to do this are not our focus this morning. In other words, I'm not attempting this morning in any way to describe how He keeps us faithful. I'm just establishing that He keeps us faithful. Write this down, 1 Peter 1 verses 3-5. through First Peter 1 verses 3 through 5. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance that Christ has so graciously shared with us, bought for us, belongs to Him alone, but He's sharing it with us. It's being kept in heaven for us and gloriously. He is keeping us by His power through faith. The woman of the song says to her husband, Be faithful to me. Be as fiercely jealous as I am. This is the nature of godly marital love. This is what God intended. We in our natural state, we're not capable of such a thing. Jesus says the same thing to us, echoing the Old Testament. Be faithful to me. Worship no one else. Be as fiercely jealous as I am for you. And here is the wonder of it all. He died to pay the penalty for our former faithful, faithlessness that by faith he might give us new faithful hearts. And he himself by the spirit who dwells inside of us, he keeps us in the faith. Keeps us faithful to Him. He jealously holds us fast. So that we do not let go of Him. His unquenchable love. It binds us to Him in so profound a way. That the New Testament authors have no way to describe it. Except by phrases like. You are in Christ. Christ in us. Not on us. Not beside us. We are in Him. If, if your heart has ever cried out to Him, if you've ever desired Jesus, if you've ever believed, if you have ever found Him beautiful, get on your knees and praise Him. He worked that in you. By nature, we're rebels. He rescued us from our own unfaithful hearts and He makes us faithful. And for this faithfulness, we are completely dependent upon Him. He bears us up. We depend not on our own willpower, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of his call in Matthew 11, 28 and following. He, he, he calls to us in our lostness and our restlessness and our fruitless labor. This is a call that, that is still music to us on this side of the cross. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus gives us rest. He, he bears us up and, and binds us to himself. He exemplifies the love of this song. And we are called then to emulate these things. How do we do that? How do we commend the gospel as it pertains to the things that we've seen in this text? Well, there, there are many Christians who have difficult or broken marriages. Many. And I'm, I, have, I have heard, I've heard people say things like, I'm staying married. Strictly out of obedience. I know it's unlawful to divorce. So I'm staying with my spouse to honor God. To get a divorce would dishonor the Lord. But, but then, that brokenness and that loveless marriage is where they settle. And live. And mark time. Please don't think that the application of this text is. Don't get a divorce. If you're staying married because you want to glorify God, that should be applauded 
but, but I want to say something that could be very easily misunderstood, so listen very closely, please. Your legally intact but loveless marriage may be more harmful to the gospel than a divorce would be. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that if you can't love each other with the ideal love of the song, you might as well get a divorce. That is not what I'm saying. No sin is the answer to another sin. It would be a sin for you to end your marriage by divorce. The answer to a loveless marriage is to repent of that loveless marriage and obey all that the Scriptures teach about marriage. There are other higher commands in the Scriptures pertaining to marriage other than just don't get a divorce. And, and for us to think that as long as we don't get a divorce, we fulfilled our obligation to God in our marriages, that's somewhat like thinking that as long as we don't kill our children, we have fulfilled our obligation as parents. Why would I say that? Say that because one of the ways that the Israelites worshipped false gods in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament was by offering them up as sacrifices to false gods. So multiple times Yahweh declared what an abomination this was to him. Can we then take that and say, oh, as long as I don't kill my children, I've obeyed God in my role as a parent? Of course not. There are other commands in Scripture, higher commands that pertain to parenting. We can't take the easiest one to obey and say, I've done that, I'm good. The New Testament also says, what about parenting? Raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of course, don't kill them. But merely allowing your children to live is well shy of what God expects of, of parents who believe in Him. Likewise, just staying married grossly lowers the bar of Scripture. Ephesians 5 calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It commands wives to submit to their husbands and respect their husbands as the church does Christ. Of course, stay married. But merely staying married is well shy of what God expects of us as spouses. A, a, a broken but legally intact marriage is not a faithful picture of the gospel. And a faithful picture of the gospel is what God has commanded of us in our marriages. Let's stop thinking of no divorce as the bare minimum for a marriage. That's not the bare minimum for a marriage. Christ-like love, that's the bare minimum. So I'm not advocating divorce, never would, but I want to open your eyes to how damaging to the gospel message is a loveless marriage. A, a, a divorce says to the world, something obviously went wrong here. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This one failed. Don't look at this one. Look at these others. Look at these others. This is how it's supposed to be. This legally intact but loveless Christian marriage, I would argue, may be more damaging to the cause of the gospel because this marriage is lying to the world about the gospel and saying, yeah, this is, this is what the gospel looks like. A husband's indifference to his wife, wife's indifference to her husband. We should hate divorce because God hates divorce. It should grieve us. But family, where is the remorse? Where is the grief over our rampant disregard for higher commands pertaining to marriage? Many people have the mindset, I, I want to avoid divorce at all costs because it would dishonor God. That's right. But let's raise the bar to where Scripture has it. We should have the mindset I would rather die than defame the gospel 
with a loveless marriage. I repent of this. So, so the, the application is much more than simply staying legally bound to this person that you married however many years ago. The love that Yahweh has for His people, the love that, 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 that Jesus has for His church, this is the love that we are called to for our spouses. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. That's the love that we're called to. Exhibit toward your spouse this fiercely, exclusive, righteously jealous love. Consider yourself bound, not by shackles, but by godly love that cannot be extinguished. The very flame of Yahweh. Have a heart toward your spouse that says, there is nothing that you can do to cause me to stop loving you or to cause me to stop wanting you for myself alone. Exhibit a marriage in which you're not simply bound by the law of the land, but in which you're, you're knit together physically, emotionally, spiritually by a love that can only come from God Himself. Where you're faithful to each other, not simply with your body, but with your mind and your heart. Just, just read the Song of Songs. That This is the kind of love and affection, this godly marital love. This is what commends the gospel to a watching world. Some of us may be thinking, my marriage can't be anything but what it is. It, it can't be anything but what it is. If, if you think that, I want to invite you this morning to rediscover the gospel. Because you have a tragically distorted view of its transforming power and the might of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you think that Jesus can only die for sins, but He can't change hearts? Return to the Scriptures and be reminded of the fullness that it reveals to us about who Jesus is and what He does. He is in the business of binding up what is broken. Now, what, what, what if by faith you were to say today, I, I do believe the Gospel. I do trust in Christ. And what if on the basis of that you were to say to your spouse, you can curse me, you can hurt me, you can take me or leave me, but until the day death snatches my final breath, I will love you with the fiery, jealous love, the very flame of Yahweh. What if you were to say that to your spouse today? He can change you. Don't worry about how your spouse needs to change. He can change you. Maybe you need help. Maybe you need counsel. Ask for it. Ask for it. It, it, it's here for the taking at Providence. We, we offer this kind of help. Ask for informal counsel from other brothers and sisters in the congregation. You can ask the elders and say, I, I need some formal help with this. Can, can, we, can we have a counseling relationship to walk me through this? Walk my spouse and I through how to come to this kind of love for one another. Just ask for it, but decide today. On the basis of the character of Christ and His trustworthiness, you will follow Him in loving this way. This is what commends the gospel. And this is what Jesus Christ deserves from those who follow him. Let's pray together.
Father, we're thankful for all of the the manifold depictions of your fiery, jealous love in the Scriptures. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has become the picture of that for us. As he walked through the flame of your wrath that he might claim us for himself, that he might pay the penalty for our unfaithfulness, clothe us with his righteousness, and then transform us into a faithful bride. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that that transformed by Christ, we would desire more than anything for our marriages to commend that gospel to a watching world. And Father, please forgive us for the sin of thinking that the bare minimum that you require of us is to not get divorced. Of course we shouldn't get divorced, Father. Let us raise the bar in our minds and hearts to where you said it in Scripture, which is godly, jealous love. The love that Christ has for the church and that the, the church has for Christ. We know that we can only love that way by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the whole point. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Help us to believe the gospel, Father, the fullness of it, the transforming power of our Lord Jesus. Some of us have become complacent, Lord, in our marriages. I pray that your Spirit would shake us. Because of our belief in Jesus and our love for Him, we would be moved to no longer dishonor Him by simply legally intact marriages where there is no godly love. Please move us to walk in obedience this morning. We pray that you would grant us the help that we need to emulate the love of Christ in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us stand.